one of the outcomes of off the grid is I'm volunteering a lot more. Mm. And partly I, re- I read an article that volunteering raises endorphins like that's been measured. Huh. And okay, it's been measured. Also, it just feels good. Like I can, I can, I can measure it myself too, you know, in, in my N equals one experiment. And it partly it's, um, it feels good. It also, I get this recognition because people are thanking me and I'm helping them. And I mean, I, I've always volunteered. I mean, not always, there are periods in my life when I was, wasn't volunteering, but we always have. And the word isolation comes to mind a lot as, as in contrast to that. Yeah. But people talk about how isolated America is. And when look at, like, I don't know if you, there's this video uh, channel on YouTube, uh, not just bikes. And I had the guy who does it on my, as a guest and yeah, he settled in, he grew up in North America and Canada and, and compares that with Amsterdam where he lives now. And it's not just bikes, it's the whole city planning. And it's amazing to see among many things, there'll be some small urban uh, street in somewhere in the Netherlands. And it just looks like there's a couple of people going back and forth and a streetcar goes through and they don't show like a six lane highway in, in North America. And it's like the, the, the Amsterdam one has a higher throughput of people. Right. Even though it's, it's pleasant and not noisy and you can walk across the street without fear of getting hit. And this meeting that I had this morning was that like I walked from the, the guy picked me up to, from, to take me to the, to the office. But when I went back, I walked back and, and I could see, I go from the suburban area, then through this old streetcar town that was a, a streetcar town that where people would go to the train and take it into New York city. But mm-hmm. now it's become suburbanized so that the, the, the across the street from the um, train station, first the train station, the, the station itself is like now falling apart and across the street from it, it it's the building looks like it's an old theater and it was probably like the center of this town, but now it's kind of run down. And I don't know, there's like grocery stores and delis and, and cheap liquor stores. And I didn't yet see like a payday loan store, but hopefully that won't come to that. But it's, there was a town core that you can see in the buildings that's not really there anymore. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you, you read these studies about the, the generation younger than me, uh, you know, not having sex, not drinking, having like high rates of depression, anxiety, feeling increasingly isolated. Um, and it's just, I mean, it's sad, right? I, I mean, on some level, it's just uh, social isol- isolation from uh, social media and from other factors, um, some feeling of hopelessness, I guess, from so many of the world's crises. But yeah, I, I mean, even when I was a kid growing up in a small town, and I mean, I, I had, a, I guess, a pretty latchkey-like existence, though we lived out in the country. And it was still like, you know, getting together with whoever you can uh, <laughs> in a bar ditch or whatever. And um hanging out or going to a parking lot and hanging out there. I, I mean, like just the idea of congregating and getting together with your friends is so, was so central to my childhood. And now it sounds like it's, uh, I don't know, not for many people. And that seems like pretty sad. So uh, yeah, I did come home with this like renewed feeling of 
like looking after some of my communities, whether like the neighborhood that I live in or just my community of friends, that's now pretty dispersed. And, you know, you get further into adulthood and it takes more work to maintain friendships and maintain a lot of social connections, but it's like, it's important work. Sometimes it's frustrating how like these obvious things, I was talking with somebody the other day about like these obvious things that improve your life, like eating healthy or exercising or like checking in with your friends. It's like, yeah, it's simple, man. This stuff helps you and makes you feel better. Um, And sometimes we forget it and stop doing it. See, that's why when you quoted the economist saying, how do we create 19th century pollution with, without backsliding into a 19th century standard of living. And I think that's from our perspective where we, we think everything I want, whenever I want, no matter what, and all, I don't want to have to do anything more than swipe on my phone to get it. And if if that means someone's going to fly it to me overnight, fine. But when we're talking about now a 19th century standard of living, or even prior to that is not so bad. I mean, you talk about Tanzania and, and I've learned a lot about the Hadza. The more that I, I like, I see them as big role models and, and I don't know if you interacted with them or, or studied them. No, who are the Hadza? So the Hadza are, um, and I'm not an expert, but my, my understanding is that they've lived as they, they live in Tanzania, modern day Tanzania and they are hunter gatherers and they've lived as they do now. People think something like 50,000 years. And they're surrounded by other pastoralists. And um, there's a documentary that I watched about them. And I had the, the, um, the guy who directed it was a, a guest on the podcast, the, mm-hmm. the husband of the husband and wife's team. And I met her too, now online. And they, you know, they hunt and they gather. So when they're hungry, they got to go out and dig something out of the ground or they got to go hunt something. And there's one scene that... Um, the West is always trying to help them in ways that the West thinks is helpful. So they sent some, they set up some, actually I saw this one guy who lived among them for a while and he was talking about what they ate and America, I don't know, not Americans, but Westerners, non Hadza would come in and give them food aid. So they famously don't need food aid. And cause they 50,000 years, you figure out how to live there. But so people bring in flour and oil. And he said, that he saw his first obese Hadza. And it could be this first obese Hadza. It could be the first obese Hadza in, in like 50,000 years. And it only took like a couple decades for us to help in quotes them to become less healthy. And so the, the, someone set up some school, which is, I, I know they, they mean well, but the Hadza aren't lacking in, anyway, there's a school. A couple boys were there and the teacher beat them. So they decided they don't want to go to school anymore. So they, they walked back to the, where they lived and it was a two day walk and they just walked there. Now, if you asked me to walk for two days, I would, my first thought would be, I got to get equipment and go to some store that sells hiking equipment and, you know, and, and make right. sure that I have everything I need. And they just walked. Right. And so the interviewer, I, I don't know if I'm remembering it exactly, but the interviewer is off camera, but says like, how did you, you know, how'd you do it? And they said, well, we, we walked along the road and we got, like, we got food here and we stayed with this, like a different tribe, but they're all interrelated. So they, you know, they stayed with this other group and he pauses and looks at the camera. And this is what I remember. And, and I think it's on YouTube, so you can check it out. Um, he goes, 
we're Hadza. And the way that he said it, it felt like he said, we're not so spoiled and entitled like you. You know, this is normal. Right, right. Like you should, why are you even asking? What's wrong with you? Yeah, one of, when I was talking with President Mujico, he made some joke at some point about, I was asking him about happiness and who was actually happy and, and, and what was at the root of that happiness. And he said, oh, the only, the only happy people in the world are uncontacted tribes in the Amazon because those people aren't woken up every morning by a fucking alarm. Um, <laughs> and it's like a kind of simple and, and funny joke, but I mean, it gets to the heart of what you're talking about. Um, uh, yeah, it's hard. It's like you don't want to fetishize poverty and you don't want to fetishize like certain stereotypes of the the noble savage or something but at, at the same time it seems like there are some pieces of indigenous wisdom or some some wisdom that you can take from these other places and and try to work them into your your much more modern life in different ways um when i was in tanzania i was basically on a very long road trip. Um, one of the subjects of my book is is Tanzanian and still lives there. And, and I wanted to go back and see his hometown um, to try to understand where he came from and understand his family. And he was very insistent on like, all right, well, we're gonna, we're gonna like do things the way that uh, Tanzanians do things the way Jita people do things. That's the tribe that he's from. Um and so as a result, you know, it, it took us a long time to get around places because we would uh, take coach buses and sometimes coach buses break down. Sometimes they break down for days. Sometimes uh, one time we were on a major highway and then the highway flooded. And so we had to back up and pull alongside the road. And <laughs> I remember asking uh, the guide I was with, you know, like, well, what do we do? Do we take a different road or whatever? And he's like, well, we wait until the water goes down. Um, and so we sat on the road and like ate mangoes and chatted with people and caught up. And then the water went down several hours later and we get back on the coach bus and we go to where we're going. And that's all to say, like, uh, you know, there are small inconveniences in life that uh, I feel like American life, American infrastructure has like ameliorated a lot of these small inconveniences that are like at their core, <laughs> just small inconveniences, you know? Um, I don't know what that means in terms of uh, how to bring that, that wisdom or that experience into your own life. But some of it is just like, I don't know, not, not grasping after convenience all the time and not, um, you know, just buying something on Amazon to be delivered the next day because it's convenient or easy. I mean, no longer, uh, my wife's been big on this for many years, but we don't get things from Amazon and it, uh, is actually pretty easy. I don't know. Yeah. I, I don't think it's like changed my life in any observable, measurable way. In fact, like just kind of seeking out the local store that can get a, you know, hook up for my iPad or whatever I'm looking for, or hook up for my computer. Like I don't, that stuff's pretty, pretty damn easy. Um, it's not a big inconvenience. 
Yeah, this is what I found in in the tone of your article of the and and what I th- I, I really thought that you you saw role models that we in America could learn from that we generally think we should be the role models hmm. and that you're saying, I, I think this is one of the most important things that we can do here is uh, with regard to our environmental problems is to find role models. And in order to charge our imagination, to look forward to things that we now think would be horror shows. Right. And you, I mean, no one's doing it. I, I, I found very few articles like yours and yours hits the spot. Well, thanks. Um, yeah, I mean, the biggest, I guess one of the biggest things I endeavored to do was just try to suggest that there are many different paths forward and that each of them require some imaginative leaps um, and that there there perhaps needs to be some balance between supply and demand side intervention. There perhaps needs to be some balance between personal responsibility and advocating for systemic change. Um, I mean, I don't think I was pushing for any one role model or any particular vision of the future so much as just suggesting like uh, that we think about the problem in a, in a little bit more of a holistic way or a little more of a, I don't know, wider way. Um, You know, I, I know some people have felt like my article is advocating for austerity or advocating for um, personal responsibility, but I, I don't, I think that's, that's maybe a kind of misreading of what I'm doing, which is to try to suggest that there are a lot of different paths forward and, there, and a lot of them already exist in some shape or form around the world. Um, in some sense, I guess that's what I was trying to do is talk about climate change, climate action as this kind of problem of imagination. And then, you know, one way to solve problems of imagination is to go out and look at something you haven't seen before. I mean, I think that's a lot the way that a lot of uh, imaginative work begins, you know, the way a lot of novels or movies begin is some filmmaker, some novelist going to a foreign place and experiencing something new and kind of seeing how things might be slightly different or slightly um yeah, just slightly different from what they expected or what they had um, previously imagined. If we could go on and I propose, uh, there's one question I want to ask you before wrapping up. Uh, and, and also if there's anything you want to add that um, worth bringing up, but I'm curious what other feedback you've gotten from other people, uh, like maybe from your editor originally, but then also from readers yeah. Um, well, <laughs> it's always tricky. You, you both want to pay attention to that because you want to be uh, receptive and responsible to the journalism you're doing. On the other hand, like sometimes reading comments is not like the most calorically dense nutrition you can do for yourself as a writer and reporter. Um, I've been, I've gotten a lot of really cool feedback from it that people felt inspired to act a little differently. They felt um, somewhat more hopeful, not necessarily hopeful for anything in particular, but just 
hopeful that there are models and pathways out there that exist um, that they hadn't considered before. Um, I got a lot of emails from maybe people like yourself who are undertaking different kinds of personal experiments and, and what the successes or trials of those things have been. Um, that's been pretty cool to, to get emails from all around the country and around the world from people doing that stuff. It seems like people have felt like, um, I don't know, it, it was something somewhat, somewhat novel, somewhat fresh, somewhat optimistic, um, which has been really interesting um, and nice for me to hear uh, both that it felt like it was some no a novel take on, on a problem that a lot of us are thinking about, and also that it felt optimistic to them, which I guess wasn't something that I set out to do, um, nor was it necessarily a thing in my mind why I was writing. Um, but perhaps a lot of the stuff we've talked about today just was kind of seeping into my brain unconsciously as I was writing um, and, and lent itself to, to a bit of a optimistic subtext. Um, I don't know. That's probably, that's probably as, as deep as I've read into um, some of the responses. Well, I'll be curious if it does seep in and propagates throughout your life. Mm. If you find that happening, I, I give you an open invitation to come back and share how that's, yeah. how that's changed. Yeah. I wonder for you, um, what's often the prompt for you to undertake some new change or some new experiment? Yeah. I mean, is it, reading an article? Is it having some realization while you're walking down the street? Like how has, how have things gone from a thought or um, a, an imaginative moment into like concrete action? Let's see. I mean, avoiding meat happened in 1990. That was from reading diet for a small planet, which mm. taught me that I, before that, I thought meat was necessary for life, that I would die if I didn't eat it. That told me otherwise. And then it, was, it took a couple of years before I got to where I had my last, Escovich fish was the last fish that I had at the Third World Cafe up by Columbia. You, you remember it. You remember your last supper. Uh, yeah, I remember that last, it, there was that and, and, and there was, um, I bought some chicken, a chicken breast and breaded it and fried it up. Mm -hmm. And that connected actual chicken like i i could eat I, I i would eat more like a hot dog hamburger you know you can't tell where that came from cheesesteak like it's not obvious that's a cow right so the more processed it was the easier it was for me to eat back then and then when i made chicken nuggets from scratch myself that connected chicken nuggets which you know that's not obviously from a chicken mm -hmm. and probably isn't anymore i don't know there's very little from a chicken but that once that connection was there, I could then it wiped out the processed food. Processed meat was still meat; it was still an animal, so I, that stopped that. Hydrogenated yeah. oil, I talked about um, corn syrup. I forget, um, but then there was there was usually something that would trigger it, like um, with avoiding packaged food. That was looking at my seeing how much garbage I was producing and saying. I, even if I can't fix the whole world, I'm still responsible for mine. Hmm. That pro and the, the, the not flying 
was that I saw a video of uh, this guy, David McKay, who wrote this book, um, Sustainability Without the Hot Air. And he said that flying, he's British, so he said that flying London, LA round trip was about a year's worth of driving. <laughs> and that was way more than I expected. And at that time, I thought I probably polluted a lot less than most people, but my flying at the time was high. So that I, I flew once more after that. And that on that trip, I was lying awake at night, just thinking of, of what I was doing to the world. And mm. so that prompted that one. Unplugging the fridge came from reading an article about how Vietnam and other places ferment more. And they've, and I, by that time I'd learned that too much analyzing and planning just delayed things. So I, I read that article, I was sitting there looking on, and my fridge was the biggest power draw in my apartment. And I'd, I was like, I have no idea how I could get by without a fridge. And so I started thinking about how I would do that. And then before I could stop myself, I went over and unplugged it just to force myself to figure it out. Then the unplugging the apartment, I went for 24 hours with it unplugged once to see if I could do that. And that wasn't very hard. I just went with uh, my ex-girlfriend and we just rode our bikes around and went to Brooklyn. And since I did that 24 hour, oh yeah, it, it, that was prompted because when my, when my electric bill was down to like a dollar, <laughs> a month. There's $18, 18 to $20 that I can't do anything about. That's just connecting. Right. But for the part that is variable, then once it was down like a dollar, $2, I posted on my blog. I wonder if I could get to zero. And I wonder if can anyone help me with, you know, does anyone know how solar works? And no one answered, but that kind of stuck it in there. It's like, I wonder if I can do this. Mm -hmm. And then again, that happened when I unplugged, when I, the first time I, I, um, you know, there's one time when I, I, um, I charged the thing, the battery all the way up to hundred percent, made some stew that meant I had enough food for a few days and the battery was down to like 20%. And I thought I want, if I want to try for a month, should I like, should I do it when the Con Ed bill, it, it, the, the bill comes on the seventh. So I was like, should I wait until the seventh? How much should I figure out? Like how much the computer uses, how much the, the floor lamp uses, and then I realized, oh, this is that analyzing and planning. I shouldn't, analyzing and planning always delays things. And then came the thought, I guess I just started. Yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating how, uh, and I got to hand it to you, how <laughs> quickly you go from thinking about something to trying it out because uh, I feel like some large percentage of my time and my brain space is occupied by like shit that I would be interested in trying or shit that I feel uh, bad about, or I want to spend more time doing and then uh, not doing <laughs> for various reasons, like procrastination or I forget about it and move on to some other thing. Or um, although it's interesting things like, flying i have been kind of consciously unconsciously flying a bit less this year i mean i i made a couple of big trips obviously to uruguay and then to east and southern africa but you know there have been smaller things like uh conference speaking engagement other little things that i maybe would have normally jumped at and in the last couple of months i've been like you know i'm good um I don't, I don't know that I need to do that. 
partly because flying sucks and partly because I'm not unafraid of it. But um, yeah, I, I also wonder if there's some element of just like contentment with without doing it now that's that's kind of seeped in for me. I've had big changes there. I mean, I I should mention that when I saw the packaging, when I decided to try to avoid packaged food, there was six months between when I had the idea to do it, when I actually started. That's what taught me. Okay. That makes me feel a little better. <laughs> yeah. It was because I was like, what do I do day one, day two, day three? And right. do I count? What about stuff that's in my cupboard? Will I f-? So what I learned from that experience was the best way to answer all these little knickknack questions was just to face the questions as they come. Right. But I didn't know that until I actually did it. I just, I mean, I had this moment when I went to, um, so I, I just one day said, I'm starting right now. I'm not going to die. I'm just going to start now. Mm-hmm. And I figured it out. So I said, all right, this stuff in my cupboard, I'll allow. So there's no buying anything package. So I'll eat something packaged because I had packaged food there. And then when I went to the store, you know, I had this big moment and I talk about it in one of my TEDx talks of, of feeling like helpless. And what can I do? Like, it's, I can't eat without hurting people. Yeah. Cause I've seen, you've seen the pictures of the plastic in the ocean and, and, and I don't know if you've seen the story of plastic, but this is before, this is well before that, but I knew what, where I knew what was going on. Mm-hmm. And, and then, yeah. And so I bought, beans dried and boiled them on the stove for the first time. And, you know, some people have been doing that since they were the, since they could turn on a stove right. or, or light a fire. And, you know, there was a lot of shame to get over of feeling like, how could I not know this basic thing? Not a lot of shame, but um, maybe not shame, but like stupid or feeling like unprepared or just right. entitled. Like how had I not know that it was so simple? Yeah. And, and then even after I started doing it, I was having basically steamed vegetables on lentils with a little salt and pepper on it for months and months and months and slowly figuring out what fit, like how things would go together until eventually my famous no packaging vegan stew formula came together. And now I love my food now. I mean, I really, and that, that experience from, six months of, of analyzing and planning going nowhere to just realizing, just do it, figure it out as it comes. If I try to solve any, every possible problem, I'll never start. And that's what I see as a culture we're doing. Mm-hmm. The way I jokingly put it is that if you ask a bunch of economists and engineers to solve a problem, you give, if you give them the budget and time and money, they'll use up the time and money and then tell you we're almost done. We need a little more time and money. Right. And if you just solve each problem as it comes, I think a lot of the problems that we don't know how to solve, if we actually face them, we'll solve them in a matter of days or weeks. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I guess I was thinking about these problems on a kind of macro level when I was writing the piece that it feels like there are different pathways that people are suggesting through systemic action and uh, and different models show how we can get to net zero by this year or that year. And that's where we should place our energy. And in the back of my head, I was thinking like, well, what about in the meantime? Like, can't I also choose to just forego flying for a couple of months while I'm also voting for some of the decarbon- 
decarbonization measures that um, these activists or climate scientists are talking about. Um, and uh, it also seems like choosing to make these small personal behaviors a little less impactful is also going to maybe push you to be more engaged on these things on a, on a kind of macro or political level. Um, it certainly doesn't seem to me like it could be the opposite, like that somehow by focusing on my personal behavior, I could, I could start to tune out of the wider um, political sphere or implications. Uh, I guess, I mean, the world is vast and full of a lot of different people, but um, it just doesn't seem to me like an attention on personal behavior could undermine wide scale systemic action. Uh, that, that seems weird to me. Um, I think it's people defending their sense of if they, if they recognize that what they do matters, then that means all the stuff they've been doing up until now they're responsible for. Mm. And that's going to make them feel guilty. And so that's Lincoln's quote. What, you know, the worst thing you can do for yourself is do something you think is wrong because you, you, then you have to keep justifying that internal conflict. You're going to want to keep suppressing it. So to say what I do doesn't matter. And if you say it and I say it, and we all agree that we're not going to challenge each other on this, Mm -hmm. then we can say, I'm not doing wrong. There's nothing else I could have done. And since when, you know, this idea that um, living more sustainably is a burden or a chore or is in any way undesirable is this unstated thing that like, why is sitting by the road eating mangoes so bad? I mean, it's not. And why is, you know, if I say farmer's market, knee-jerk response for almost everyone is, oh, Josh, you're so privileged. You don't know that other people can't, right? And I'm like, I grew up eating welfare sandwiches. And, uh, and also, if you can, of course, I know that there are lots of places with food insecurity and not lack of access to food. That's what I'm trying to change. Mm. And if your response to it's hard for them is, then I'm not going to do it either. That's exacerbating the problem. Every dollar you spend at McDonald's is a dollar spent on extracting wealth from those communities. I mean, a McDonald's is like a payday loan store. It's like, that's the last thing you want in a neighborhood. Mm. And if you can afford to shop, all right, farmer's markets are not more expensive if you know how to shop seasonally, but not knowing how to cook, not knowing how to shop, that's what's expensive. But if you have access to a farmer's market and you want to help them, if you want to hurt them, don't shop at the farmer's market, them being people without access to farmer's markets. If you want to help them, shop at the farmer's market because that's going to get more farmer's markets. Don't shop at the supermarket, at the Whole Foods. That's going to get more wealth extraction, more time extraction so that people are, don't have time and money in those areas it's, and you get the, the, the death spiral happening. Mm-hmm. People it, eating fresh fruits and vegetables is... I think people see it as like a return to the stone age. And it's, I see it as delicious. So yeah, to me, acting more sustainably is like primarily it's delicious. It's spending time with people that I care about. It's release from cravings of freedom, mental freedom, physical freedom. It's saving money. It's having more time for what I want. People are like, oh, no, I don't have time for that kind of stuff. And I'm like, how many Games of Thrones episodes have you watched? Because I haven't seen one and I'm not missing it. They've all seen them all. Right. 
I mean, it's pretty good. Um, the show? Yeah, it's fine. Um, Maybe I should watch it. I've been reading Lincoln biographies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I think, I think you're doing fine on your own. Um, I, I wonder for you, like, is there, maybe people ask this in an annoying presumpt- presumptive way, but is there like a, an end goal for you here? Do you feel like you're going to reassess at certain times and like figure out, what the impact or lack of impact has been and if it's, I guess, sustainable for you going forward? Well, I mean, my goal was one month and I didn't think I'd make it two days. So in terms of just unplugging, I'm just like, I'm not on cloud nine, but I'm like, wow, this is amazing. It's like, I feel like um, I'm trying to think of an analogy. It's like, um, I feel like there's some cartoon movie where someone like puts on the shoes and they start flying and it's amazing or something like that. Like, uh, and, but the, the goal was always, leadership. I, I can't lead people to do something that I'm living the opposite of. Huh. Yeah. It was never just my own. I mean, it's an experiment. So I'm, I'm you know, I'm a, I'm a trained as a scientist and, you know, try something out. I, I'm not going to go in theory and I keep, so there's a big thing of like, how do I get this out? How do I express this in a way that people find it intriguing? You talked about people living off the grid um, in some remote place or, or, or but to me, it's important that I'm in Manhattan because half the world lives over half the world lives in cities. Right. And if they cannot imagine, I could not imagine doing what I'm doing now an, an hour before I started it, even after I started, I couldn't imagine. And when, when the, when it broke down after two months, again, I was like, well, I guess I have to give up. And I couldn't believe I just kept making it another day, another day, another day, another week, another week. And I was channeling that old teammate of mine, Ben, who was, playing with the most intense defense I've ever seen. And so I was channeling that, but now I start thinking about Michael Jordan and uh, Muhammad Ali and people who, you know, when someone asked Muhammad Ali, how, how many sit-ups he did. Mm -hmm. Do you know the answer? I think it was in when we were Kings. I forget. (laughs) No, I don't know. He says, I don't know. I I don't start counting until it hurts. (laughs) So he he does like 500 or so, and then starts counting. Or I, I have no idea what the number would be. And I'm thinking, you know, Jordan was always there before anyone else and left after anyone else. And he was, you know, intent on winning no matter what. And I'm not nowhere close to that. I'm like, I carry these, the, um, the solar panels up to the roof, up and down a couple times a day, maybe four or five days a week. So it's an extra 22 flights up and down for, arbit- not arbitrary, but, but on the other hand, at the beginning, I was thinking it became like a kind of ritual. And then lately I've been thinking, why can't I be like a normal person and drive a car and do a Stairmaster at the gym? Mm-hmm. And it's absurd because. Right. Well, and it's interesting too, that you, it's fun. You couch some of this in like the language of sports and even like the language of recovery, which is like day by day, uh, yeah. keeping my eye on the ball and my eye on like, you know, the match or the opponent that I have right in front of me. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's a thing in marathons is definitely, it's like, all right, I'm just going to get to just mile 15, just mile 16. Yeah. The step in front of me. Yeah. Yep. And, oh, there's another quote that really, I'm reading a lot about abolition, which has a lot of parallels and of, of changing global culture and Harriet Tubman. I, I'll, I'll do uh, to the best of my memory. It's 
you know, so she, as, a, as a, I think she escaped. I don't know if she bought her freedom, but in any case, she went back in, she went back into slave territory and freed a whole bunch of people on multiple trips to hook them up with the Underground Railroad. Mm-hmm. And one of her quotes is, if you hear the dogs behind you, keep running. If you, I forget exactly, if you see the torches, keep running. If you hear them talking, keep running. If you want freedom, keep running. And I'm thinking, if you're, if you hear the dogs, what's, what's that, 100 yards? Like, it would feel like giving up at that point. But she's like, no, if you can, she's, if you can hear the dogs, you're still free. Keep going. And that, oh man, that just really charges me up. And I'm like, I'm not trying to escape slavery. I don't have, you know, I have no direct experience of that. But she, that came from her personal experience. I can only imagine that was personal experience of hearing the dogs herself. And we're like, oh, but I need an SUV. What am I going to do if I don't have an SUV? I'm like, if you hear the dogs. (laughs) I mean, some of it's probably not even thinking at this point, right? It's just um, uh, learned behavior. It's muscle memory, right? Well, yeah, I mean, a lot of what we think is necessary for life is actually necessary for our culture. Hmm but may actually be harmful for life. Yeah. I mean, that's, it seems to be, that's what you're discovering that the deprivations are actually pretty few um, and not that powerful and that the uh, positives for it are pretty incredible. That's been my experience. And I mean, my mom is like, it's great that there are people like you and Greta who, who (laughs) say this stuff. I'm like, I'm not just saying it. This, she's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know <laughs> she, she doesn't say it in this many words, but it's, it's like, I know that you don't like it, but you believe in it. And so you're suffering and you're telling people it's not suffering, but really you're giving stuff up. Right. I'm like, thanks mom. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, maybe she knows you pretty well and uh maybe there is some some little suffering involved in it but uh, i don't know that that's a bad thing necessarily i mean there are definitely things that i'm i'm like going, going up and on the stairs is i mean it's exercise so lots of people view exercise as torture right and i don't but i do recognize it's not fun that part isn't fun but right but there's definitely also- Plenty of the farmers market. Fun. Yeah. And I mean, there's plenty of stuff that's not fun that I'm I'm not doing anymore. I mean, going through security at at the airport. Oh man, a friend came in to visit and it was the first time in New York. So I went to to JFK to to meet her plane. That was my first time in an airport in a long, long time. And I was like, this is horrible. This is like a wretched place to be. Uh And maybe I was projecting some stuff, but it was like everyone seemed so miserable and so what are what are your rules around using uh public transit or like the elevator in a building or uh the power that might be provided by or being paid for by other people? Do you have like rules around these things? Yeah, some rules and some figured out as I go because definitely if you try to solve everything before you start I'll never start. You'll never start. Yeah. So I have to figure some things out as I go. And some people are like, well, what about this? And I'm like, I haven't figured that out yet. I don't know. So like toothpaste, for example, 
they keep giving out all this, they give out toiletries to homeless people in the park and a lot of the stuff just gets thrown away. And I'm like, this is a sealed container. So I'm, I'm like overflowing with toothpaste because they just keep giving the stuff out mm-hmm. and I could throw it in the trash can or I could keep it. So I keep it. Um, but some stuff like I, I took the train to Salt Lake city to give a talk a few years ago. And then the following year I, I took the train to LA and, and back. Mm. And that was really cool. Like I was really, I mean, I wrote initiative, my second book on the trip to LA and back. The, the, and in fact, when the train pulled into LA, I was like, Oh, I'm almost done this chapter. I, I wish the train <sighs> was a bit, bit longer. Oh, wow. And definitely, you know, around Denver, when I could start seeing, or Colorado, when I could start seeing the Rockies, I was like, oh, wow, this is amazing. And then going up in the mountains, because they have the the cars with the windows on the top. And it's really stunningly beautiful. Although I also had to get out everywhere and find litter because I had to pick up litter every day. And in the middle of, from LA to Houston, which is a 48 hour ride, every stop, and these stops are like in the middle of nowhere. It's just everyone gets out and smokes. Mm-hmm. And there's like litter. Not just the cigarette stuff, but it's literally, it was clearly like blown in from somewhere. And so, you know, it's easy to say, oh, the cities are all dirty. It's everywhere. Uh, but elevators, so I don't take the elevator. My, I live on the fifth floor. So the four, the four flights up to my apartment, I walk. And to go to the roof, I walk. I don't take the elevator. That's 11 flights. But if I'm in another building, then, yeah, like I, I, I record an episode with this guy who's... Um, at this law school near here. And it was on the fifth floor, I think, but it was really high floors. And I was like uh, out of breath when I got up there, but like the, the guard at the desk was like, take the elevator right there. And I, I looked for the staircase and I found the staircase. But this morning when we went to the guy's office, I don't know, I didn't feel like looking for the stairs. So I just took the elevator with him. Um, I take the subway. I take the bus. I've taken one, maybe two shared rides with an Uber thing in the past couple of years. Okay. Uh, I'll take the bus to my mom's house, but I haven't since the pandemic, but I'll get a ride with my sister. Uh, in the first year, there's a big thing happened the first year on my, um, the, the year, my first year, not flying, my uncle died and that was Pittsburgh. And that was a big gut check that the default would have been to fly there. And my sister lives in Queens in New York. And she ended up deciding to drive. So I went with her. So instead of two people flying, two people drove. And I ended up spending, it was a great trip with my sister to go out there. And also since I, that was, I also realized that I wasn't going to, um, like when my dad went to India during the pandemic, I chose that if he dies in India, I'm not going to go to a funeral in India. I mean, I don't know what would happen, but, you know, he was going into like heavily, dangerous area or, you know, heavily infected area. And, um, and he's in, I don't think it was 80 yet then, but there was a real risk of him dying there. Hmm. And I made my peace with that. I wasn't going to go to India if that's, if, if that, if that happened. Wow. And I mean, I presume they would send the body back. I don't know exactly what would happen, but I made that choice you know, I, I knew where I was going to go with that. Hmm. And, but that didn't come out of nowhere. That came out of right after I chose not to fly for that year, my sister who spent many years in Japan and has, has extended not family there, but like, you know, her Japanese family is there. 
And she was like, hey, Josh, we got tickets to Tokyo round trip. It's $800. And I was like, that's really cheap. I'll start after I get back. And then I thought, no, 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 I'm trying to live by my values here. If I, if I do that once, I, you know, how many other times am I going to say, oh, I'll start later. Right, right, right. So, and I didn't feel I missed out on anything. And the way I put it is the, the world is too full of, there are too many beautiful places and too many amazing people for me to meet that if I worry about the things that I'm not seeing, there's an infinite amount of that effectively. There's more than I can cover in a lifetime. So the best strategy I can do is to enjoy where I am and with with whom I am maximally. And then I find there's there's no shortage. In fact, I'm I'm, I'm overwhelmed with the the nature that's here. I don't see nature's over there anymore at all. And I I find the advertising that suggests that you got to go to the Amazon or something to see that, to see, to experience nature is actually depriving me of my experience of nature. And like I was with family, there's... There's family and friends. If I'm always thinking of the ones who are far away, I'm always craving something far away. But everyone, flying doesn't allow me to spend more time with anyone or more, doesn't get, I don't spend more time in places. It's only, I, it makes me, the advertising makes me think that there's something over there that I want. Hmm. But everyone, if, I'm, if I go to see someplace else, I'm not here. If I go to, and, and here could be a bike ride away. It could be a, a walking. I mean, people used to walk to vacation. I mean, we used to walk to places far. And now we're incapable of that. So I feel like the freedom that he talked about, and the, there's much more abundance now than when the abundance was um, a plane ticket that I had to save up for, or even if I didn't have to save up for it. It was always somewhere else. There was a gatekeeper who was saying, it's so great, buy it from me. And now I don't have that. And when I go picking berries in the spring, oh my God, I'm so happy. Because I find all these, and actually I just recently found a crabapple tree near me and they're, they're kind of tart and sour, but sweet too. And I'm like, I love picking these things. It's, it's, I feel like, partly I feel like a little kid because I'm like stuffing my face and like picking stuff as a, as a kid might. And partly I feel like a king because when I'm eating these berries off the tree, I couldn't possibly get them fresher than picked, my, picked by myself. I couldn't pay to get better than this. And this is a kind of talk that my mom was like, yeah, right. <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, I admire it. When, when you first reached out and I was looking uh, through some of your stats, I mean, I was, I was pretty floored by what was possible and also just admired the the fact that you had, I don't know, had the balls to undertake a experiment and see what happened. Um, I don't know. I really admire that. And it seems like it's, it's brought a lot of fulfillment into your life, which is really cool. Yeah. When I started avoiding packaged food, I really expect that was the first big one that was for like, the stuff before that of like avoiding meat and, and, and um, corn syrup. Those were really for myself. Mm-hmm. But avoiding packaged food was the first one where I thought, I'm actually, I'm taking one for the team here. I'm going to suffer for everyone else's benefit. And that was when I found out that I actually benefited from that, that I enjoyed the experience. That made a big shift. It, I was prepared. If that didn't go well, I was prepared to say, well, if the cure is worse than a disease, I'll take the, I'll take the disease. Right. And when I found that the cure was not only better than the disease, 
for me, but it was things like, there wasn't anything special about me that I saw making this better. And I thought, this is something that the world, I saw an opportunity for leadership that to change the, the, the vision and the, I could tell that I'd been fed a story that was serving someone else, not me. And there was a better, a, a brighter future this way than anyone saw. Hmm. And how to communicate that, that it's not reverting to the stone age. It's, it's not that a recession followed by depression, followed by economic collapse, followed by the road warrior and Mad Max, followed by <laughs> some dystopic future. It's enjoying tomatoes locally. And then you don't get them for right. 10 months yeah, because they're not in season anymore, but something else is in season. Yeah. I mean, I think one possible result of climate change is that we're going to have diminished quality of life. Right. I mean, I think we've all pictured climate change in a certain way as like the end of the world, but the reality is that it's not the end of the world, at least for our generation and the next, but, but that it is maybe the end of a certain kind of quality of life or a certain kind of convenience and comfort. Um, and I was talking to a, a, a class yesterday, as I mentioned, and I was saying this to them and, and, I actually find some amount of hope and optimism in that, though it sounds, I don't know, cynical or pessimistic or something, but the idea that um, life may change in certain ways, but that there's still the ability for us to find life within new parameters, um, actually somewhat hopeful and optimistic, and it makes me feel much less uh, fatalistic about the future and about what to do, because I feel like a lot of the catastrophizing and a lot of the far reaching studies have had that effect on people. They've left them um, confused about how to go forward, confused about if they can go forward, confused about if it matters at all. And it seems like in the last couple of years, there's been a switch both in the science community and, um, maybe in the activism community too, and like toward uh, away from these far reaching studies and models about what's going to happen in 2050, about 2100, whatever it is, and, and increased focus on what's going on right now and, and what we can do right now and what small changes we can make, um, particularly as a household or as a city or as a state or as a region, um, and that, I don't know, I, I, I find that a bit more inspiring or motivating um, than I did before. Yeah, people, the scientists, people haven't tried doing it. They, it I have to be blunt here. They don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> to suggest <laughs> right. that this is a burden, they, they really have no clue what they're talking about. It's, it's a bunch of people who have read books on music theory and they're trying to teach piano when they've never put their fingers on the keyboard and they just think it's too much of a pain to practice. And, mm. and every now and then they just take a sledgehammer to a piano and that's not, that's not whom to learn how to play the piano from. 
and how to learn, how to live sustainably, how to change culture. That's why I'm reading Lincoln. That's why I'm reading Tubman. That's why I read about um, Thomas Clarkson and William Wilberforce and because they changed culture, they did it. And, you know, I'm always going to be a fan of science, but just doing research. You know, I saw this, I saw a movie about uh, disappearing coral reefs and they showed some images to a bunch of scientists. There's some conference, a science conference, maybe it was about coral reefs and they showed what's happening, all the bleaching and they're all disappearing. And all these scientists are crying because they're seeing, you know, their life's passion is dying. Yeah. Now, when you, when you know what to do, emotions get intense when you don't know what to do. If you know what to do, you roll up your sleeves, you put on your wingtips, you get to work. But they had no idea what to do. They were clueless. And in fact, they were contributing to it as much as anyone because scientists fly around because all the trips are paid for. And that's one of the perks is like you get to take trips everywhere. So they're helpless. I want to take that. I don't want people to be helpless. And I don't want people to feel like, oh, I have to give up all the stuff. Mm. And, or maybe if they realize that what they're giving up is actually holding them back in the, in the way that a heroin user does, does not want to give up that jolt. Yeah. Or at a certain point, they feel like they have to take it to feel normal again. And to, I, I would expect that to someone who takes meth, the idea of working for a living and you know, having an honest job and exercising and eating healthy probably looks square and loser. Why would I want to do that? And you know, I inject this stuff and it's great. Why would I ever want to do push-ups? Why? And, but I think most of us get that that's an illusion that's maintained as long as you keep injecting, as long as you keep living a standard American lifestyle, you're going to be addicted to it. Mm -hmm. But what from our perspective looks like, Oh, 19th century lifestyle. And careful not to slide into 18th, 17th, 16th stone age. Again, mother's dying in childbirth. You get a cut. You might going to die. Every, your tooth hurts. You got to pull it out with no anesthesia. That that's the story we project in order to keep, doing what we think is wrong and still be able to sleep at night. And that's scientists who, and, and politicians and activists, and they don't get it. They're, they do, I can talk about, I can read a book on piano theory or on music theory and talk about theory because I know some math and I can talk about the patterns and what a perfect third and fifth and whatever that stuff is. I haven't, I don't really know it, but I, I, I'm sure I could learn it. That doesn't mean I can play piano. Hmm. I can read a basketball, the rule book, and I have no, that doesn't teach me how to dribble. And that's what we have. It's a bunch of people who've read the rule book and telling us, I know the rules and you don't, here's what to do, but don't pay no attention to mine, not doing it myself. And so they don't know the joy, the freedom, the fun. I mean, there's very few, um, how do I put it? Ways of ways of philosophies of life, whether it be religion or political persuasions or communities, that more nature doesn't actually resonate with their their most basic values. Things like do unto others as you would have, have them do unto you, or leave it better than you found it, or live and let live. Because we're not doing any of those things now with regard to the environment. We're not living and letting live. We're not leaving it better than we found it. We're not doing unto others as we would have them do unto you. And I, I think that 
even if you think it's a loss to not have Big Macs whenever you want it, I think that when you really get down to it, I think most people would agree that if you have to choose between one, Big Macs or living by do unto others as you would have them do and live as you would have them do unto you, I think people get that that's a trade worth it. It's worth it to lose the Big Macs if that means you're restoring do unto others, the golden rule. But when you're deep into addiction, you can't see that far ahead. Yeah, I would hope on my best days I could behave like that, but <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if I just sound, did I just sound like pontificator? Was I preaching there? I, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, in my heart, I'm showing my experience. No, I mean, I, I think that the fact that this is coming from experience for you and the fact that you're walking the walk and trying to model the good behavior here is what helps a lot of it feel relatable and um, inspiring and not uh, annoying. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, I mean, these are, these are hard conversations to have because uh, this isn't the way that our culture is wired. And I mean, it's not even the way that uh, my brain is wired, even though I'm spending a lot of my, my days thinking about climate change and thinking about its impacts on people right now. Um, so it's, sometimes it's bracing to hear these things. And sometimes it's um, confusing when people are trying to so totally change your worldview. And I think just to go back to what I was, I was saying before, I mean, I do think that this, this kind of renewed focus on the present tense and this renewed focus on resiliency and this renewed focus on maybe uh, local movements. Um, that's why some of it feels empowering. Cause I think the, the kind of science fiction scenarios to bury it, to borrow a phrase that Walter Bathkin used um, in the Uruguay story left everyone feeling pretty fatalistic and like they couldn't do anything. And like the, the future was, was closed to all possibilities because the models and the, the studies were showing them that. Um, and I think this is also probably the natural result of us being in the, I, I don't know, the first couple movement, the first couple stages of a movement, right? Um, things have felt extreme. No one's known what to do. And I feel like we're, we're entering a, maybe another stage of the movement where people feel galvanized towards action. Renewable energy seems like it's taking hold in a lot of different communities and different places around the world. And it also seems like, you know, maybe with Uruguay as an example, some of these lessons about sustainable living are uh, taking root in different cultures. You know, whether that all adds up to what we hope it to be or what we need it to be is the open-ended question. But um, I don't know. I, I was interested to be able to go to a place where I could see see a model of of things being done. And I found that pretty inspiring. Well, I'm glad that you shared it. And I'm glad that you, what it, the things that you did to reach the place, to present it as you did. And I mean, we've, we've both used the word imagination a lot and the article uses a lot. And I think that that's, that's one of the biggest things I took away, imagination and role models of, a different direction than a lot of people think is the only way we can go. And I think likely more effective both for culture and, the, and, and nature in general, but also on the individual level. 
so I thank you for for putting that article out there and 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 the preparation it took and the editing that must have gone into it to get it out as it as it did. Well, thanks. It means a lot. And I'll I'll repeat the the open invitation as things settle in your life and if things change or not. If you want to share, I'd love to have you back to to hear how it goes after however long it takes for it to propagate. Yeah, thanks. I'll be curious to check back in with you and see what experiments you have going. Well. Noah Gallagher Shannon, thank you very much. All right. Thanks a lot, Josh. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, That's joshuaspodek.com slash donate.